0: This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! This is Rodge from New York City, beautiful New York City, at this time of surreal challenge, when so much of what makes us who we are has been taken away from us. Our work our sports, really our outside life that's not lived in sweatpants. More than ever, in these times, we turn to those we love, to family, colleagues, friends. And so I thought it was an apt time to bring onto to this pod a gent who's been my best friend from the age of zero. We grew up in Liverpool together. Yes, we survived our bizarro schooling at Liverpool College together. And when I moved to America... He came over and lived with me in Chicago for that first glorious year. And when I later got married, I had two best men, my brother Nige and this bloke. And they opened their speech by explaining the choice was a no-brainer. As in their words, Nige is my only brother and my guest today is my only friend. There is, as they say, truth in humour. I speak to this bloke four or five times a week. I think the collective memories we share together, they really anchor me. They do. They send to me in a way we learned yesterday that the late, great Kenny Rogers pet goat used to send to him. Partially, well, he's the funniest bloke that I know. And partially because he's a fellow lifelong Evertonian. And so to talk about our Liverpool life, Liverpool the city that is, our Everton love, and how we've experienced this poor season of Jurgen Klopp wonder, such complex feelings. A welcome to the pod from his home now in Crouch End, London, my best mate in the world. Oh, it's Mr. Jamie Glassman.
1: Hello, love, how are you?
0: Oh, I'm good now, Jay. I really, just hearing your voice, I want you to know, mission accomplished, soothing. Because you have been my friend since in Diapers, right, since the year zero
1: believe there is a memory that you've got you remember us in a sandpit together aged around two i've, I've tried to i've tried to clear that one from my memory but it's
0: my earliest memory is a, a sandbox as you call them in america of me being in a sandbox with my guest jamie and flinging sand into his face which made him cry and your mother this is my earliest memory your mother coming over saying why are you crying jamie and she, you explained to her I'd thrown sand in your eye and she said, well, just go and throw some sand in his. It's parenting.
1: And Many years later, she probably remembered that when there was a few years when she would try to keep me away from you and not, and not pass on the, the times that you called. <laughs> <laughs> she was seen as a bad influence on me for a long time. It
0: is safe to say that you suffer the horror of knowing me pretty much better than anyone in the world. And the joy of it all is, though... I keep finding new things out about you because you and I are lifelong, lifelong Evertonians. But this podcast was precipitated by a chat we had just this Monday in which you blew me away, Jamie Lassman, because you told me how you became a blue in the first place.
1: Well, I remember I wasn't, I'm not a lifelong blue. I was undecided until the age of around six and a half. And I've got a very strong memory of of being given a choice. Well, what are you? Are you an Everton fan or a Liverpool fan? And I I didn't have a good answer. Because you were an Everton fan. And my dad was an Everton fan. But Everton was shit. And, (laughs) (laughs) And Liverpool had Kenny Dalglish. And were winning the league every year. And were in the European Cup final. It was... And I... I chose you and my dad over decades of glory and joy or a different, a different form of glory and joy, I suppose.
0: I won't break this down because this, this is an amazing story. We should say your dad, the great Irv, a chill, just a incredibly chill man of wonder who died far too young. He was a noble, quiet, brilliant gent of Valier. Had incredible panache, your dad. It was so like him. Not many parents would do this, but it was so like him to not want to influence you and empower you at the age of six to make, let's just say, I don't like to be hyperbolic, but the most important decision a child can make solo. That is crazy parenting.
1: It's true, actually, because he was one of, there was like when he was growing up, him and his uncles and cousins used to sit, apparently nine of them used to be season ticket holders and go to Goodison every single week and sit in a line He was very much a hands-off parent and waited for me to make the decision. And I made the right one for him. Did you, though? Did you? Did you? Because as you say, this
0: Liverpool, when we were kids, we were born into an era in which Liverpool began to win everything. Everything. I mean, it felt like every year they were driving through the city on the back of a bus before adoring thronging crowds they went by the way they went right down the bottom of my road it was just every bloody year they were rubbing it in my face it would be a league trophy or a european cups or sometimes both they always flew chew- through chewing gum off the back of that bus which i people would fight for and i'd always get a packet and i'd chew it guiltily at home under my own everton posters on my bed but they were winning everything and y- you what you told me on monday you 're never you 've never been sure if this decision to support everton was quote the best decision or the worst decision you 've ever made in your life it
1: was an inevitable decision i couldn 't i can 't imagine what my life i can 't imagine what my life would have been like if i 'd been a Liverpool fan. I know it would have been filled with a different type of joy a, a, an unadulterated one not tinged with not tinged with
0: But when we spoke Monday, you said something else to me, which was lovely. You said you are so glad that you became an Evertonian because if you hadn't, you said you and I would not have become such great friends.
1: I think that's probably true. I think, you know, definitely at the time it was a big bonding, bonding uh, part of our friendship when we were kids. I mean, later on, we moved on to other things. Uh, But I think it's probably, it's given us, I mean, how often do we phone over the past 20 years and just talk about what's going on before the game, during the game, after the game?
0: Sometimes we don't use words. It's just 15 minutes of sobbing. When I say sometimes, I mean, a weekly basis. But I loved what you said, that we wouldn't be such good friends, because when I put the phone down to you, I did think, God, if you'd chosen Liverpool, Jay, maybe you'd have, you'd have other friends, better friends, who ones who'd understand victory and joy, as well as what I've brought to the table.
1: I could have lived a, lo- a life of, of great joy and silverware, but instead I got you and, you know, swings and roundabouts, love.
0: Robert Frost, The Path Not Taken. I recently made a film about Liverpool's history. In the shadow of the cop, and to make it, it was a personally gruelling experience having to ask dozens of Reds fans to just describe their heroes because they have so bloody many. It's like Kevin Keegan, King Kenny Dalgleish, Ian Rush, oh Robbie Fowler, God, Stevie G, Nando Torres. Oh, it was just like Luis Suarez. Oh, my God, there were so many. And I was just like, it was a horrific three days of filming. I was just genuinely like, make it stop, make it stop.
1: It says something about Everton that Tony Hibbert was, his such a folk hero of Evertonians because we just didn't have, we didn't have decades of goal scorers and winners to celebrate.
0: This bass fishing is worth the trophy.
1: There was something about Liverpool in those days that was, you know, the defined Everton. And, you know, we like to think, we like, we had a few glory years in our teenage in our teenage years. Everton were were an incredible club to watch, and you think about that first eleven, and they just they looked like they were going to win every game. But because of the history, you knew that that didn't stack up when they played against Liverpool, and you were just terrified that you know every other week. You could beat everyone, but when it came to playing Liverpool uh, You were never guaranteed you were you know, you expected rubbing.
0: You do you talk about when Everton come up against Liverpool and just that fear in the belly. I mean, the Mill Cup final nineteen eighty four, a top three magnificent collective moment of our youth and I think probably speaking for everyone who was alive in Merseyside at that time, because Everton and Liverpool both reached the final. It's the League Cup, the Milk Cup was what it was called then. The Cannibal, what it's called now. They reached the final at Wembley, and this was against a backdrop of the Thatcher era when Liverpool, the city, because of the government policies, was really on its knees financially, culturally, perceived by the rest of the country to be a wasteland for us all, Jay, it was less a football game. It was just the most bursting moment of civic pride, right?
1: It was back in the days when Everton and Liverpool fans, there was, a, there was more of a friendly camaraderie between the two of them. I feel like it's not quite the same now. There's more of an antipathy between the fans of the two clubs. But, right, but back then, you had 80,000 people go down from Liverpool to London to watch the game and the whole of More, the-
0: mate! More, I I, I remember there were like one out of four Liverpoolian males attended. Attendance at the game was 100,000. The streets of Liverpool were empty that day. There was just an armada of Scousers invading, you know, coming from the north, which we, we knew we were seen as barbarians. We invaded London. Liverpool, red and blue, owned that entire city. We all went. Everybody, it was not a doubt. Down- when you walk around Wembley, you knew everyone at that
1: game. So, but you know, the, obviously the famous moment of that final is when it ended in a draw and the whole crowd, the two teams together start walking around the pitch, cheering the fans, wow. and the whole crowd, all 100,000, started instead of cheering their teams, started cheering Merseyside. Uh, and it was... It was, I mean, I was 13 at the time. It was pretty moving.
0: Merseyside, Merseyside, Merseyside. We bellowed that. We bellowed that. It wasn't about the football. It really was, was about our chance to show defiance to those London knobs that we were alive. We were alive and we were winning. It was incredible unity. To be candid, everyone felt unity. Apart from me. I was absolutely just pent up furious that Everton got screwed. I think Alan Hansen handballed a goal-bound shot right in front of where we were sitting, actually. Adrian Heath drilled one in from close range, used his hand, not a penalty given. Everton screwed again. Oh, Liverpool won the replay 1-0 three days later, in case you're wondering. But the funny thing about that game, I loved every second of that trip but one of my top three memories of that game is stopping off at one of the first McDonald's in Britain on the way to the match. I had my first ever chicken McNugget and it tasted... Oh, it tasted as if Daniel Ballou had cooked it for me. Oh, it was magnificent. By 1985, Everton, widely recognised as one of the best teams in Europe. What a team. Oh, what a team. We reached the final of the European Cup Winners' Cup, kind of Europa League predecessor. We'd smash Bayern Munich in the semi-final. Facing Austrians rapid Vienna. Here's what's amazing to me about this game. You told me on Monday that you turned on the television to watch that final and you said I never doubted Everton were going to win.
1: Oh no, but you didn't doubt Everton were gonna win most things at the time. You were we were we were such a good side. We were so strong at the back and so creative up front and we were We were unstoppable. And I remember going around and watching it with my dad and some of my dad's friends, and there was kind of 20 of us around somewhere. It wasn't really a nervousness. There was just an excitement. Yes, the Everton are going to win some European silverware tonight. Come on. Yeah, but, Jay, can we pause
0: there? Because the concept of an Everton who wins things, our audience are not even going to be able to conceive of that. It's like trying to think about me with hair. No how, no way. I mean, it is astonishing because we have seen Everton in our lifetime win things. But when I look back on my life, I don't really remember the win so much, the happiness. And there were great moments of happiness. Everton winning FA Cups, Everton winning the league, 84, 85, 86, 87. It's the savage, cruel, twisted losses that I remember. That's what defines me. Why is that?
1: They hurt more, don't they? It's the hope that kills you. I remember there's, there's also, there was a, an FA Cup final in the 80s. What year was it? 85, 86, I'm not sure. Where, again, it was the FA Cup final. It was Liverpool-Everton again. 86.
0: We were so good.
1: We were so good. And if it was any other club, you, we would have beaten them. But they just had us. They had it over us. And we went uh, We went 1-0 up. Lineker scored. Gary To Lineker. go 1-0 up. And... And then Ian Rush equalised and there was a statistic at the time and I don't know if this went all the way through to the end of his career. I think it might have gone for the whole of this guy's career that whenever Ian Rush scored, Liverpool did not lose. And he'd been playing, like at this point, he'd been playing for Liverpool week in, week out for like eight or nine years and scoring 25, 30 goals a season and Liverpool never lost when he scored. And so as soon as he'd scored, it was like, okay, that was it. You knew, you knew what was coming. He scored again, and then the mighty Craig Johnson got the third. 3-1, we lost. Little Aussie guy with a terrible perm and tiny shorts. Do you remember those tiny shorts? Yeah,
0: they haunt me, mate. That package, that Aussie package. I will say, Ian Rush genuinely does haunt me. If you never saw him play... He had a mustache, he had the face and the physicality of really an H and R block accountant. He probably would have been like, you'd think, eh, hey, he's pretty good. He's, he plays for the like in the in some club league in, in in Akron, Ohio. But he was, he worked so hard, he was so clinical, so lethal, and he hurt Everton more than any other player. November 6, 1982, seared into my brain at Goodison, Liverpool. <laughs> Won the derby, to my horror, to like 11-year-old Roger's horror. They won five bloody nil. Ian Rush scored four times in that game. My dad had a saying back then. He always used to say, it only takes a second to score a goal, Rog. Which was like his way, I think, of saying that a game can always turn. The game can always, you know, you can always get back into things. So in my head, I was watching that game with just a complete, naivete and optimism of a child. And I still believed, even, you know, 3-0 down, still believe, 4-0 down. You know, to me, we were 5-0 down. And in my kiddie head, I remember this, only takes a second to score a goal. So, ergo, as long as there were five seconds left in the game, even 5-0 bloody well down, there was still a chance for Everton to get back into this. My heroes could still get back into this and grab a point. And as we entered the 89th minute, Jake, just bedraggled, humiliated, utterly crapped on. I turned around to my dad and said, you know, I elbowed him and smiled and I said, only takes a second to score a goal, right, dad? And he turned to me, just ashen-faced and screamed, don't be bloody stupid, Roger. (laughs) Perhaps more than any day in my life, Jay, that was when I realised everything I'd been told was a lie.
1: Before you told me what I had said, I was kind of, going to predict that those were his exact words. But um, <laughs> I also remember a 5-0 where we beat Man United 5-0 at Goodison. And that was an experience that, ah, there was something. Every time we got the ball, we looked like we were going to score. It was incredible. And then eventually we, we, the game ended 5-0. I remember the next day going into, into Levitt's, the local deli, and Wally Levitt's the old man who smelt of herring, the lovely man who smelt of herring, who ran this shop for, je- for decades, leaned over to me, and he knew I was an Everton fan. He says, you know what time it is? And I I, I said, no. He said, it's five past United! <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was a moment where I was, yeah, I was sharing in a grown-up's... A grown-up wanted to share a joke with me, and I was... That was a a big
0: moment. God love Wally Levitt. He'd been saving that joke up for 40 years, I imagine. Another derby that I remember, and by remember I mean that scars me savagely. April 3rd, 1999, derby day. I was back from Chicago. Somehow we got tickets to go to Anfield to watch Everton lose to Liverpool 3-2. Just to throw in some context, there have been 123 total derbies in our lifetime, Jay. And Everton Football Club have won just five times at Anfield in our lifetimes. This is astonishing to me. I counted them up before we got on the phone. And in this one, this was not one of them, dear listener, just to be clear. Yes, Everton again. This is now a pattern. It's so terrifying. Everton lull us into false hope. Scored first in the first minute. The great ball, Olivier Dacour. Too early, too early, we screamed, even as the ball span in the back of the Liverpool net. Liverpool ended up winning 3-2. It's a game most famous to Liverpool fans, yeah, because Robbie Fowler, God, Robbie Fowler, God, scored twice, and after his first goal, yeah, it's the game where he celebrated by miming, snorting cocaine along the white lines of the penalty box to... Oh, mug off Everton fans who kept chanting that he was a cokehead. We leave the game early, actually. We missed the last goal. Everton got a late Franny Jeffers goal, I think. The stadium roared. But we'd gone with our best mate Charlie's a big red he's got a medical pass on his car which means he can park anywhere and he'd stuck the car right outside of Anfield and I remember you and me were just leaning against his car when that final whistle went when the final whistle goes particularly the Derby but any football match just a wave a tsunami crashing into beach of people just charging out of the ground that's what we got to witness just thousands of people running with fear with anxiety with anger everyone wanting to get either, I guess, to fight or to flight, one or the other. And at the front of the pack is just, you see this, everyone's running as fast as they can, but running faster than anyone else towards us on the one road out of Anfield where we were. The biggest loser in the stadium is a kid who looks, he looks like Tony Hale would have played him in a movie. This was, yeah, this was Liverpool Gary Walsh, and he was a red. And he was charging for his life, this guy. That's what we, you could almost see, just like him crapping his pants as he was looking behind, trying to get ahead of people who wanted to beat him up, sprinting ahead of the pack. And yet, when he came to us leaning against the car, even in his fear, he stopped.
1: He stopped because there was something important that he needed to say.
0: Poor message that he wanted to deliver to us. Everton had been beaten, and the biggest loser in Liverpool turned round to mock us. What did he say, Jay?
1: Fuck off, pom pom head. Fuck off, pom pom head!
0: Fuck! It was the way. Also, how many syllables were there in the word "fuck"? That okay. came "fuck off." It was it was like an oasis version of "fuck, fuck off." Pom pom. I, I have rarely felt more degraded, Jake.
1: I kept that haircut for a number of years afterwards. In in you know, in defiance of that moment.
0: God, that's amazing. because I shave mine off almost immediately? That is the big difference between you and me. And part of being an Everton fan. Is is revelling in being degraded. And so one of the fascinating parts of this season for me, I've got to ask you about it, this incredible season of Liverpool wonder, of win after win, of collective tenacity, of Big Verge, of that front three, of like Jürgen Klopp and his joyous passion, has been being forced to confront the extent to which my happiness as an Everton fan for the last 30 years I've realised to my horror how much of it has revolved around Liverpool not winning the title either? What will we be left with if Liverpool are given this title with its trophy and its asterisk? Will we be left just with our self-schaudenfreude, the happiness in our own failure?
1: I don't know. You know, Everton will rise again.
0: Will we? Because I actually think being the best thing about being an Evertonian, which is the best thing about me, is that it prepares for me to confront the darkness, the sheer horror of life.
1: I feel sorry for Liverpool fans because they have no, they don't
0: have it's that. also why it's so important for me to have my kids become blues. i worked so hard at it, so bloody hard, hardest I've ever worked at anything in my life, to be honest. But you sagely took the same approach as your dad did when it came for your own son to have the choice, the choice, tell us how that went.
1: My son Elijah is now nine. He was similar to me around six and a half, seven. He wasn't sure what team he supported. The difference for me is we live in London. We live like about a mile away from, from Arsenal and a mile and a half away from the Spurs stadium. And he goes to school and his friends are, well, actually, some of, some of them are Spurs fans and some of them are Arsenal fans and some of them are Liverpool fans. None of them are Everton fans. And my wife was saying, you should just, he's never going to be an Everton fan. Just get, buy him a Spurs kit. Your wife's proper West Ham. She was in a West Ham, but she wouldn't force that on him either. She was like, just get him a get him a Spurs kid, get make him into a Spurs fan or an Arsenal fan and cut your losses. And I didn't listen and I couldn't do it. And three of his four of his closest friends at school are Liverpool fans, and he's gone to the dark side. And he, my son now is a Liverpool fan. And Part of me feels a great sadness that we will not share in this great thing for the decades to come. And part of me feels a great relief that he's going to know uh, a joy that I will never know, which is decades of silverware. And you want your best for your children, right? You do.
0: But to suffer what you've suffered over the past 12 months, mate, I mean, when Liverpool... Beat Tottenham Hotspur in the Champions League final last summer. What what did your then was he eight eight years of age? Eli, he was
1: he was eight at the time, and he was like <laughs> he's like dad, dad. Oh, I can't I can't describe to you what it's like to see Liverpool winning this. I've waited two years for this. He'd been a Liverpool fan for two years, and here he was. They'd finally won the Champions League. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> bless him. Bless him. I just had to put my arm around him and said, you know, I'm happy for you, son. I'm happy for you. What, what, what did
0: it feel like deep inside in that moment as a bloke being patronised by your eight-year-old Liverpool-supporting son?
1: Like um, Topol in Fiddle on the Roof when his daughter married a Cossack. Like the line of Evertonians had come to an end.
0: You're Moses. Ne- you are Moses, never being able to enter the promised land.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I showed him. I, I you know, we, we traveled to the desert together and I showed him the promised land, but I, I could never enter into it with him.
0: Oh, the promised land, mate. It's not all it's cracked up to be, believe me. Parenthetically, I must be a terrible father for making all my kids blues, right?
1: I uh, That's between you and your god roger i can't i wouldn't make that judgment you know the time will come the time will come not it won't be this year it won't be next year won't be the next five to 10 15 20 years but if you hold out long enough glory will come to goodison again
0: (sighs) bite your arm off for 15 to 20 years i did ask them all my kids all four of them are blue and i asked them ahead of this what do they feel to prepare for this podcast yeah I did some research I said to each one of my kids together at the dinner table by the way one of the great joys of this awfulness the silver lining of this awfulness is having a family dinner every single night and just trying to have conversation and meaning and this was not one of them because I made the mistake of asking them kids what do you feel Everton have given you in your life what does it offer you what 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 part of your identity does it Does it represent, are you ready for this? Because I wrote their answers down. So Bear, my second son, who's normally the quietest, he was quickest to respond. He he just genuinely just didn't have to think for a second. He's like as if he'd been waiting the whole time for this question. I said, what does Everton bring to you? He just looked at me and he said, small victories. I said, what do you mean? And he said, dad, the Newcastle game this season when we were 2-0 up until the 94th minute and somehow drew 2-2, he said, if you can survive that experience, you can survive life.
1: Oh my lord. How early you've managed to mess up your kids. It gets
0: worse, mate. Zion, my daughter, 11, smarter than all of us. She said, being an Evertonian, we have more joy than any other team. Because when we beat Manchester United 4 0, we overflow with joy. We dance. And Liverpool fans don't because it happens to them like 35 times a
1: season. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's beautiful. She's, I'm, she's clearly taken her optimism from Vanessa. My
0: wife, Oz, my youngest, he said, he's eight. He said, after a while thinking, he said, you learn to get by by hating Liverpool and just willing Manet and Salah to leave. <laughs> I've done a terrible thing. And then Samson, my oldest, 16. He said, I get bonding and shared experience with you, Dad, shouting at the television for a team who will only sell young players too early or buy great players too late when they are past their shelf life. (laughs) That is eternal hope. And then he came back into the room and he said, Dad, you do know that if Everton ever win the league, your pants would be so stained like my duvet is now. Never been prouder. So I've got to close by asking you: What does it mean to you to be an Evertonian? It
1: means so much, and it is. A, I mean, it means all those things. Your kids have nailed it. It means reveling in the highs and understanding and living with the lows, and it and it's a, a bond with you and a bond with my dad. And it is a constant throughout my life.
0: They're always there for you. Always there. It doesn't matter if the there is disappointment. It's just a constant. Because that is ultimately what it means to me, Jay. When I hear Zed Cars, that song that's played when Everson run out their tiny, tiny, tight little tunnel. It does. It means everything to me. It really does. It's my relationship with... With my grandfather, Sam, the first blue ever in our family. For my father, Judge Ivor. With you, Jamie. With your dad. I mean, a great blue. Irv, may his memory be a blessing. With my kids. I hope, I hope my kids' kids. God, please make them blues. Please, 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 please make them blues. I mean, it really, it means the arc of life. It really does. It means the arc of life and football as a, as a purveyor of memory oh, and a conveyor of love. I love you, Jamie. I really do.
1: Oh, I love you too, Benj.
0: I love you, Everton Football Club, but I love you. I really do, mate, even more than I love big Duncan Ferguson. Courage.